Do you feel good? Do you have you taken a breath centered yourself? I haven't, but I live life behind the wheel, moving sure. only forward, never back. I need nothing but a few dollars to keep my uh, keep my car in shape. <laughs> uh, I'll be fine. It's going to be great. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I'm Thomas, and joined by, as always, my amazing co-host, Bethy Squires. Bethy, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Thomas? Uh, just totally rocking. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, in addition to Bethy and myself, tonight we are joined by the iconic, and and the 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 lovely uh, film critic Hulk. Oh. Film critic Hulk is uh, oh, <laughs> sorry Hulk. Uh, <laughs> I was just gonna say Hulk hello. Published <laughs> a... <laughs> no no no. Please, no, please, we're not say hello. done talking you up. Hulk, please say hello. Uh, hello, hi there. <laughs> How's it going? I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, he may sound uh, angry. Uh, he may sound uh, incredibly strong, but uh, he's actually a sweetheart and uh, a very thoughtful film viewer. So we're really happy to have you here, Hulk. <laughs> I think not since we had Riley on have I felt so threatened in my position as strongest person on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, well, I feel like Riley could take anybody at this point. He's, he's, just, yeah. he's just all wiry, sinewy. In, uh, He's definitely fighting. better at fighting, yeah. but I, in my head, I need to think that I'm stronger, even though that I, I know I'm not. But some part of me has to be like, but I'm beefy, so. Yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't been in a fight in twenty years. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the two of you, though, you could maybe take one big swing uh, and 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 really challenge Riley for his title. Riley's more of a grappler. <laughs> if he gets you down on the ground, you're fucked. Yeah. He'll uh, boa constrictor you. <laughs> Um, yeah, so tonight is actually a special episode. We're not talking about movies. We're doing a sort of celebrity death match of past guests <laughs> talking about who could kick whose ass. All right. We knew Hulk would be the perfect guest. Um, uh, so yeah, we're going to start with um, Patrick Bryce versus uh, Katie Walsh. Oh, Katie Walsh. In a fight to the death. <laughs> Just kidding. Patrick's taller. But Katie's scrappy. Anyway. Yeah, we're not doing that. We're actually talking about uh, a movie, a really fun movie, one that in the last year I've grown to love and I understand to be a longtime favorite of Hulk's. Uh, tonight we're talking about Monty Hellman's 1971 opus of a road movie, Two Lane Blacktop. Great. By picking this movie, Hulk, you've kind of created sort of an end of summer road trip for watching movies at the bar. Because it's become a whole series with with Annihilation, a goofy movie, Badlands, and Tulane Blacktop. You know, just the normal classic road <laughs> movies that everybody talks about. I think that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, no, I, th I think you can even look at this movie as like a super, super, super prequel to like all the fast movies and everything that came before. So it, it's in that grand summer tradition, too. So I like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love that, and I'm excited to hear you talk more about it. But uh, Hulk, 
Uh, before we get into any of that, Bethy's got the most important segment of got the show. It. Yeah, what is your relationship to watching movies at bars? Is this a thing you do, or do you prefer to, like, watch a movie and then talk about it at the bar? What's your experience? Uh, I like a movie. My favorite bar movie is anytime people mm-hmm. are sitting there, and they're there to be at a bar. They're, like... The TVs are on, usually they're watching sports or whatever, but then somebody puts on a movie and like, it's usually just that one TV that's kind of off to the side or whatever's going on. And there's somebody just like, what, what the heck am I watching? <laughs> like, what, what <laughs> is it? It just like, anytime there's just this visceral image of something that is distracting to somebody who's not even like, this movie or whatever it is wouldn't be on their mind normally. And suddenly they're seeing something and they have no idea what it is and they have to know. Like, that's my favorite <laughs> part of, like, anytime something movie-related happens at a bar. Uh, and there's so many good things that come out of that. I also think sometimes that, that like, catalyzes a sort of pre-internet phenomenon where before people go to their phone to Google what it is they're watching, you kind of lean to the person next to you and say, what is this? And I think that's yeah. really beautiful. Uh, no, what's funny about that is I actually became really good friends with uh, uh, some of your friends at your birthday, Thomas, uh, when uh, Land of the Lost was playing. <laughs> it was just, and they were just sitting there like what the heck is this i'm like oh actually Wait, uh, the original 70s tv show the... yeah yeah so oh, not, okay. not the new like movie, the, but like the, the uh the uh original thing which which was even a little older for my time but my brother grew up on it my older brother so like i knew what it was from reruns and all that sort of stuff so it's just uh yeah <laughs> i like that sensation a lot yeah, tonight we're talking not only Monty Hellman, but Monty Barr. Shout out. Love that fucking place. Love the way they project really weird old stuff onto their almost like Baroque wallpaper. And there's it just it creates a really strange um but uh kind of enrapturing effect. Absolutely. I would like to add that I saw for the first time Land of the Lost the movie when I was working at a metal institution. Oh wow. So I, I have no real follow-up. <laughs> Don't know that I do either. As the story started, I was like, I'm going to tell you about my favorite moment in the Danny McBride Land of the Lost movie. And now I... Is the floor still open for that? I think so. I think okay. we had a nice time watching it. I, I, it was, a, I had a co-worker who didn't like to do his job, so he would just put on a movie. And since his job was, like, to do skill workshops at, like, 8 p.m. on a Sunday when it's not useful and would also be just sort of needlessly patronizing, I think we were all for just him doing movie night every fucking Sunday. <laughs> but this time, it was Land of the Lost, and I was like, oh, Yorm's in this. And then that's the last thought I had about that movie. <laughs> until right now i i liked it when it came out but i think i was just so in the bag for danny mcbride's thing i to this day think he is maybe my favorite uh comedic screen actor i just i I love his presence um but there's this great moment in the land of the lost maybe the only great moment i haven't seen this movie in more than 10 years but there is a giant vibrating crystal and danny mcbride touches it and realizes that it makes his voice warble just so. And so he does this, uh, do you believe in love after love? But like, uh, it, it, it is almost an auto tune with this strange magical crystal. Anyway, I don't know that I recommend that movie, but I like it. 
Yeah, no, I, I have okay memories of when I saw it and laughing a lot, and I, it, I haven't revisited it. Yeah, I remember it being a fun time, fun hang. Wait, sorry, Hulk, maybe this is tipping our hand too much on what may be your return to the pod one day, but you are the biggest Your Highness fan I've ever met. I remember the night I met you, I think in 2012, we were like walking down Beverly from El Coyote. Everyone had had a couple of margaritas and no one was quite ready uh, for you pitching them, Your Highness, as hard <laughs> as you were. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like... uh it's just, it's a movie that at every step where it could make a better joke, it makes the dumber joke. And that's why I love it. Uh, I mean, uh, God, uh, I was about to bring this up as an example. And like, literally, we're sitting here talking about uh, as we're recording this, uh, they announced Norm McDonald passed away today. Uh, but it's yeah. the same exact thing where like, you kind of introduce the tension of what's funny. And then he just doubles down on the obvious crassness of it. Like, that's such a Norm MacDonald right. joke every single time he does it. And I just thought, like, oh, it's the same exact mechanic. <laughs> like, in your highness, it's just every single time they just go lowbrow, 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 lowbrow. And I really like it. Uh, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to revisit it. I think that all I really remember was that uh, Danny McBride doesn't really have the same comedic delivery when he's doing this weird yeah. sort of old English um, a- accent. And then there is a Minotaur. Which is a better accent than Natalie Portman's accent in that movie. I, I will go to bat for that. Uh, she's great, obviously. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm more surprised at how good Danny McBride is. <laughs> is there also a Minotaur in a labyrinth with a huge penis? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's stupid, yeah. but I like it. <laughs> and um, Ben Best wrote Your Highness. Oh, yeah. oh rest in peace. He's so fucking yeah. funny. That Eastbound and Down is an all-timer for me, and also the Foot Fist way I love. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. he was an actor in Land of the Lost. So, and, and I remember Foot Fist right. way back, uh, back out here when uh, it was just like this rumor thing that was going around, mm-hmm. and like the 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 festival DVD was just like changing hands at production offices, and everybody was talking about like how great this movie was. And I remember going to see it. Uh, with a Q&A from like forever ago and just immediately I'm like who are these people how do I see more of what they do that was also kind of square one for Jody Hill too right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's that's how they all kind of got their start uh they actually uh because Danny McBride the only thing he had shown up before in was um oh what's it all the real girls I want to say I can't remember but the um uh, David Gordon Green movie back when he was making just those very, you know, independent sort of more experimental narrative. Like George sort of Washington era. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was right yeah. after that with uh, Zoe Deschanel was in it, too. And just, yeah, I, re- I remember him showing up and he played a character called Bustass. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the name of every character he's played since. And that's why we <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think... We feel warmth towards Danny McBride, also, man, yeah. at Ben Best. Just so sad. So sad. Yeah. yeah sad day all around today. Mm. Uh, should we pivot? Should we talk yeah, a little let's... about James Taylor? Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> do it. Has anyone... It's fine if you say no. But to me, I like don't know that anyone has ever looked kind of like cooler and more like sexy in a movie than James Taylor in this. Like there's something about him that is just so alluring and just unreal cool. Okay, so I will say no. 
to okay. that. I appreciate, I think he does look cool, but he has an anger in his eyes that I find uh, threatening and a turnoff for me personally. I am not, um, I am not attracted. I'm only, oh, well, hmm. Like I like crazy women. That's a thing for me. But men, no. I only want betas in my life. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, so it's it's possible that I'm generalizing too much from uh, the kind of man that I'm attracted to. But I, James Taylor in this movie, sends me. Yeah, no. I mean, I'll put it this way. Especially like when it's one of those things where most people know James Taylor as you know, like. The, the gentle singing in the rain, you know, like, like playing acoustic guitar, everybody's sitting down at his concert, uh, you know, and he's a Massachusetts guy. So I feel like he was always around a lot where, where I grew up. But like, so when you suddenly put that in comparison with what he's doing in this movie, <laughs> it's just this radical, whoa, James Taylor <laughs> has a very different energy than what I was expecting, which is part of it, like when it surprises you. Uh, I'll put it this way is like, I, <laughs> so all of a sudden when, uh, like I, you know, I love Tim Robinson, obviously, uh, I think you should leave, but all of a sudden when that video went around of him, like being really good at skateboarding, <laughs> I was yeah. like, yeah. I think I have a crush. <laughs> like just straight up. I think I have a crush on this man. It's like that sudden surprising thing that, you know, a gear you didn't know they had. That's what, that's what really gets me with James Taylor on this one. He definitely has the range because I think the first time I was aware of James Taylor wasn't even his music. It was when he had a guest spot on The Simpsons in the episode Deep Space Homer, (laughs) (laughs) where he's singing folk songs to soothe the people who are maybe going to die in space. Yeah. Uh, So that's the James Taylor I'm used to is like this folksy. And then they, they draw him even like wirier and like smaller and he's talking even more meekly because he's like right up on a microphone for that. Yeah. Uh, and then to be this guy that I'm mildly scared of, like, oh, he's scary, yeah. Damn, yeah. James Taylor. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like I like how mysterious he is. I mean, he says so few words in the whole movie. Most of when he's talking, he's like being a little shithead. He's like goading people and like kind of making fun of their cars. Like he's talking a lot of trash, yeah. but just under his breath. I love that. I wonder if the way that James Taylor seems kind of angry and a little bit frightening in this movie is at all a reflection of the production conditions. I read today that Monty Hellman did not give them the script in advance, and it was really important to him to just give the actors their pages on the day to give it more of like a a spontaneous and organic feeling. And, And James Taylor, from what I understand, you know... In all of his recording, he's always sort of calling the shots. He's very much in control and sort of the the inversion there, he hated. Um, and so I think to some extent it's the character, but I think there is a raw, authentic quality in the fact that I think James Taylor might have just been pissed off. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that's a part. And it's this is a, it's such an interesting movie, like where you talk about the history of it. And, and I'll be honest, like part of me is a, a, a little nervous because I feel like there are people who are like absolute experts about this movie. And there are people who are experts about Monty Hellman or, you know, huge James Taylor fans, especially like Dennis Wilson, the Beach Boys. There are people who know so much about that and so much about Warren Oates. Whereas like, 
I know a good amount about all of them. <laughs> it's like kind of one of those. So I feel, you know, I feel really intimidated because like anytime you start talking about sort of the history of these people or the movie, you know, and especially Dennis Wilson, like, like there's always someone who's like, actually the real story. <laughs> and, and so like, I kind of have that general nervousness, but like at the same time, what I really love about this movie kind of doesn't have a lot to do with the history of it. Um, and it's more just like, it's actually uh, a really interesting, rich, symbolic movie that uh, kind of gets into like a lot of uh, high school English paper bullshit. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like on it, but that's what I really like about it because it mixes all that stuff about its vibe and like you know the low key way it goes about everything while also saying some really interesting things. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I love most about it. I should say just to ease your mind, and Bethy, you can tell me if I'm off base here, but we don't necessarily invite experts on the show we invite <laughs> we invite people who just uh love a movie that is the only prerequisite you yeah. need to satisfy and any expertise you bring beyond that is more than welcome but this is not the definitive <laughs> two lay yeah. blacktop conversation yeah. it's just the most fun I, uh, yeah yeah no i this i, is I a guess... podcast for enthusiasts over any other type of person <laughs> yeah i guess i guess that's my own uh you know fears coming through but uh i'll put it this way is i first watched this movie uh 20 years ago about that uh i saw it in film school actually and i i took a class it was one of my favorite classes um it's called american cinema of the 70s and you know usually we did stuff like there's a lot of french new wave and like things that were more i don't know european focused rather than american focused uh and so to get that class was kind of just this nice little ooh, this is like a nice little gift there's a lot of movies we love here but we watched a lot of things I had never seen before. You know, people went in like, oh, we're going to watch Godfather. We're going to watch Raging Bull. We're going to watch it. But instead, we watched like, you know, movies like this and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and like a bunch of things that were just kind of I sort of knew but hadn't seen before, especially, you know, when you're 19, 20, whatever. And uh yeah, it just it just really blew me away the first time I saw it. And just like everybody's like, whoa. And that was my introduction to Monty Hellman I didn't realize he had produced Reservoir Dogs and done all this other cool stuff but like from then on I was I was pretty in <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting you say that the rest of that curriculum uh was was kind of Eurocentric because I would say this movie despite having the semantics of Americana top down has almost more of a European feel to it it's mm -hmm. very patient there's very little dialogue it's very meditative yeah. like you said it's more about um, just sort of the, the the imagery and the thematic ideas that it is about any real sort of plot. I, I want to hear your summary of this, Hulk. But first, Bethy, this was your first time watching Tulane. Is that right? Correct. Tell us what yeah, you thought. I'm, what what was really it like curious. to yeah. watch it for the pot? Yeah, I think I would agree that it does have very much like the grammar of more of a European movie. It almost, almost like reminds me of... Um, blow up a little bit as far as like the pacing and like the right like the way that it's sort of full circle it's like it almost seems like things are gonna happen but then it sort of just comes back to a place where it's like none of that mattered <laughs> and not in a bad way it's like i just wrote down shambolic at the end of it it's just sort of like, oh yeah um everybody everybody sort of resets i think the only thing that's really changed is now uh the girl 
is down one duffel bag. Other than that, <laughs> everybody is kind of in the same place they were when they started. And I think that's very cool yeah. because uh, narrative is a myth <laughs> that we should probably have less yeah. of. Well, I'll put it like this is like uh, to, to kind of get right into what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, either of Hellman's two movies before this. Uh, there were two Westerns with Jack Nicholson. Uh, Jack Nicholson actually wrote one of them. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, uh, uh, there was, um, uh, hold on. So there was the shooting, uh, which I don't really remember, but then there's Ride the Whirlwind, which Jack Nicholson actually wrote and it was really pretty good. Great title for a movie, by the way. Oh, oh, and Harry Dean Stanton's in it too. It's, oh. it's fantastic. <laughs> I really like that movie. Um, but, uh, uh, they got lumped in at the time with uh, what Pauline Kael, when she saw El Topo, uh, she called them acid westerns. Mm -hmm. And it became this whole thing that kind of people talked about it. It it was this, it was sort of what some American outsider artists were doing in relationship to what came out of spaghetti westerns and things like that. Right. And so I think about this because I I was literally just, you know, like reading more about all all this sort of stuff today. And there's this phrase that really stuck out to me because it applies exactly to this movie. So I'm, I'm just going to read it verbatim here. But it says, uh, acid westerns subvert many of the conventions of earlier westerns to, quote unquote, conjure up a crazed version of auto-destructive white America and its most solip- solipsistic hankering after its own lost origins. <laughs> which is one of those things where i'm like oh he made, he made another acid western with cars <laughs> you know because uh uh to like this is one of those things that that like really hit me like the first time i saw this is um it's about that exact point it's that inversion point of uh the 60s revolution and summer of love in 1969 and like right then you have manson you have everything going to shit 1970 is where we cross that like really hopeful optimistic to things are getting dark and coming undone you know so it's like there's so many movies that are set in that time you think about uh uh i mean literally like once upon a time in hollywood but also inherent vice is right on that 1970 line and it's about that sort of transition and i think about it a lot because this was filmed right at that time it's in you know and it's a 1971 movie and, uh, like, like when you think about what they're doing is it's a race backwards. It's not manifest destiny. They're not going to California to look for sunshine and happy shores. It's like they're literally doing it backwards <laughs> in this journey of everything coming undone. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's America in 1971. And, you know, now look at us. We did it. So. <laughs> Uh, that's a really cool perspective. This is already, yeah. I think, more academic than uh, podcast <laughs> tends to be. So yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's funny. It's like I, I, all the insights kind of start with that framework. But like, what I like about it is the movie isn't being that academic. It's like here's oh, yeah. your central metaphor. Now here's a bunch of funny interactions, kind of within that structure. <laughs> Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a vibe. It's a real it's a real hangout movie. And like yeah. even even when it's like dark and meditative, it suddenly gets really goofy. I think the yeah. the like playful antagonism between driver and mechanic and GTO is so incredible. Warren Oates is such an amazing doofus in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um 
But maybe before we break any of that down too much, Hulk, how would you, if you had to give someone the quick plot summary of Tulane Blacktop, it's very similar, uh, or it's very simple, so I've had a long day, how, how would you describe the movie? I would say, uh, oh, it depends. Uh, I'll go with the, the semi-pretentious answer of what I was kind of doing before. I'm like, yeah, it's a race backwards across the country as a bunch of, as two young kids and this sort of poser driver and war notes are racing each other, but not really racing each other. They're more just kind of all lonely in their own way. And as you sort of said, shambling is the best way to put it. Um, but through these little vignettes, they tell this bigger story of what America is like at the time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's it's all it's all archetypal, you know. It's like yeah. James Taylor's character is the driver, and Dennis Wilson is the mechanic, and the person riding in their back seat is the girl, and then the guy driving the GTO is GTO. Like the movie is not particularly flashy; it's real sort of bare bones. Um, but the execution is just tremendous. Yeah, and, and I'm sort of like curious because, uh, like, what were some of your favorite parts like as you were <laughs> going along and like wait what is it that like most stuck with you from like watching this movie because it's a weird watch too as you said it's very shambling well i'm having i'm having an interesting experience that like somehow i didn't necessarily perceive as much of the metaphor i almost i'm not sure if it's just because there were too many like car numbers like the <laughs> jargon of cars was maybe getting in the way of me being able to interpret the text like that's just like an immediate boner killer for me so a lot of it was like having to work past all of the car numberage yeah but yeah i i i almost saw it more on, like as a, just a straight narrative in a way it, like not actually commenting more well like the, okay so it's like i almost saw it as like not commenting on like a greater whatever of america but on the other hand that's a specific point in history as you were just talking about hulk where everyone felt completely isolated and almost devoid of meaning so in a way yeah we're both saying the same thing which is <laughs> yeah wild. yeah and it's like because like that's it's it's all sort of part of the same thing which is the interesting thing about the way she said movie it's always it's always like these little lines like they're not hanging a big symbol but it's like at one point they'll pick up a hitchhiker and he's sitting there like what's the point there's like 30 40 years left is that what we got you know and so this there's like this kind of like apocalypse that hangs over everything you know mm -hmm. i mean not to outright spoil but we're talking about a movie that literally dissolves right. <laughs> when it, uh, you know, it's it's about everything coming undone, including what these people want and what they're doing and what they're trying to do, um, and that's sort of the 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 really interesting part about it for me. Um, is it it sort of gets to be both movies at once in this really fun way. I think I think you're you, both both readings, both experiences of the movie are super valid. You know, I think when something like this is so elemental. And so simple, there is such room for interpretation and really doubling down on, on, on metaphor and theme. But it also is a vibe. It's like just yeah. sitting and watching this movie is like, oh, yeah, this is a good... Uh, way to hang out. <laughs> I I saw yeah, this like I I don't know car jargon either like at all. So I'm just like they're talking about whatever. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> Hulk, the thing you said about the movie literally dissolving. I had a really great experience. I went with a 
uh, our friend Emily, Bethy and I, uh, Emily and I went to see this movie a few months ago at the New Beverly um, on 35mm. And at the end of the movie, when it just sort of ends abruptly, it was this amazing moment because a lot of people in the room who hadn't seen it before were looking around like, oh, what's going on? And I think I felt reasonably confident that the movie was over but like it's uh <laughs> it it is really abrupt and it it uh it's it's part of what makes the movie really cool but to answer your question about a part that i loved or when i really got on board uh when i was first watching the movie i thought it was cool i loved the way it felt but the first time when they're like on their road trip and they stop to race is the first time that driver is really sort of talking shit to someone with a hot rod and there's this incredible moment where he's uh he's talking like he likes the guy's car to sort of set him up to really like dunk his head in the toilet uh and and at the end of this conversation he just says Make it three yards, motherfucker, and we'll have ourselves an automobile race. And uh, I know, I wrote that down too. I literally wrote it down too. <laughs> that is a perfect line of dialogue, so perfectly delivered. And from that moment, I was like, oh, this movie is like flash in the pan special. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, that's where that like James Taylor thing comes in again. It's like, you are not expecting it to suddenly just throw a nuclear bomb right in the middle of the movie. Yeah. There's um the way that James Taylor shit talks is also often oh I hate to go here but the way that Bosch shit talks oh um, the TV show no Bosch. no no never be afraid to talk Bosch <laughs> just talking a little Bosch here uh his whole thing is is sort of um muttering it's like not even muttering under the breath but like uh there's something very cool about somebody who doesn't need to actually act aggressive who can just be quiet but still be talking mad shit and like not feel a need to posture while giving out the mad shit it's like well just so you know your car is bad and you should feel bad about it and i would i would race you and take your car if you would let me but if you wouldn't that's fine i'm that's fine if you're a coward i don't really care (laughs) (laughs) like it's a cool cool vibe I also think about um, the scene where he gives GTO a ride. G- for, for the listeners, we haven't seen this before. GTO is Warren Oates' character. Um, and Warren Oates starts... Warren Oates' character is clearly a lonely guy. And he's got this, like, really corny machismo and, like, wants to win this race. But ultimately, he's just kind of looking for a friend. He's looking for something to do. Someone who will listen to his bullshit. And when he's in the car with, with James Taylor, he starts trying to tell him about his life. And James Taylor just says, I don't want to hear about it. And GTO's like, what? You don't want to hear about it? And he goes, not my problem. And that's just the way he talks. That's that's all he feels the need to say. And it's so satisfying as a viewer. Yeah. The way that both of the, specifically GTO and the driver react to, like, Laurie Bird's character, the girl. Because GTO is almost more consistent because all he really wants to do is, like, lie to people he just wants to like apply linear narrative where linear narrative does not exist he just wants to tell lies and like create a story and position himself as the protagonist of something he doesn't really care what he just wants to be the lead character in something 
Uh, so when it's when the girl is in the car, he starts like telling a story of what they're going to do together and how now they have a love that is rebellious and free and how <laughs> he is a, a crazy man who goes with the flow and blah, 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 blah. But the driver doesn't seem gen like doesn't really seem interested in the girl until she says that he's boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then he get he always gets mad when she goes away, but he does nothing to make her stay. Like there's no, there's not even one concession to how he lives his life that would engender the girl to not fuck off with like the next motorcycle man that comes along. Yeah, it's like he might as well be a robot, <laughs> like <laughs> going about his 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 programming, his mission. And, and I think that's very, and it's sort of interesting because it's like the mechanic is the one who has a little bit more charisma, I guess you could say, in that kind of way of just like he he's paying attention to things that are wrong, literally with the car. He's he's uh, you know trying to pay those attention. He also has that moment with uh, the girl character where they just like end up in the same hotel room and they're like, all right, here we go. You know, <laughs> it's sort of that moment. And then James Taylor just ends up waiting outside for them, you know. Yeah. And, and it's like, there's this very bohemian kind of, again, I keep coming back to that word that I like because he used it, but that shambling sort of thing of just like, okay, I might as well just go along with this, you know, because uh, you're talking, again, you're talking about lost people. The mechanic also sees to the girl when they come across that wreck and she's like kind of freaking out he like checks in on her emotionally and then like pats her on the back which is something the driver would never fucking do (laughs) right (laughs) and it's like the smallest concession towards non-car energy that could be but it is huge in this movie that he like pats her on the back the mechanic takes care of things uh i should say that dennis wilson in this movie looks so fucking cool i know i'm just talking about how cool this movie looks but like (laughs) come on it's unreal and also he's got this like he's like smirking a lot he's like very amused by the driver like they just have this incredible unspoken exchange between them in the minute changes in their expressions yeah. i god i love it the the word i'd use for him is very attractive <laughs> so it's like, I, I find him very 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 attractive in this movie it's just like i don't know young young dennis wilson i mean like lord knows he lived a absolutely crazy and haunted life but still it's like it's just it's it's so funny seeing him right at this moment too because like you want to mm-hmm. talk about a person who's who's sort of trajectory changed, and again, like because th- this was right after he found out about Manson, like and everything that went down, and like his role in it, and just imagining that kind of being in his head as he's going off to make this movie is such a strange thing to think about. Um, just like, oh man, <laughs> did did you read about the the casting? No, no, no process. Yeah. Uh, so this is amazing. And this also speaks to the way that this movie just feels elemental, like a flash in the pan, like everything came together almost as a product of fate. But Monty Hellman saw a billboard with James Taylor's face on it driving down sunset and goes, 
hmm, he looks pretty cool, <laughs> and reached out to his team to set up a screen test, and that is the entire story there. It's like, yeah. it's a movie that feels so built around these two guys, and yet it just sort of came to be. And Dennis Wilson is even funnier. Four days out from production, they hadn't cast the mechanic, and they were like, oh, it'll just be someone. Yeah. And a friend of the casting director goes, oh, you know, I, I know Dennis Wilson. I feel like he could be pretty cool for this. And again, that is the entire story. (laughs) These guys just sort of, it's almost haphazard the way they became these characters, but they're perfect. I can't imagine this movie without two like rock stars driving the car. Yeah, I mean, literally, and and, and it's that thing of like, you know, we haven't haven't talked much about the like Roger Corman-ness of these movies, but that's what it is, is like, you know, and Monty Hellman has come out of that and they've, that's how we got to start. That's how they all became Mm -hmm. friends. But it's that you know, Wild West time when movies could be made like that. Keep it under a certain budget, keep it at a certain length, you know, and kind of just put your own personal stamp and do the thing. Put enough action, put enough car races, do that, and we'll be good. We'll be able to sell it. Like, that was the whole attitude. Uh, you know, keep it under 100 minutes. <laughs> like, just just all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I really like that era of filmmaking exactly for that reason. You know, is just it's like people making a lot of snap decisions that end up having these really interesting, weird payoffs. I often think about the sort of Cecil. Have both of you seen Cecil be demented, the John Waters movie? I haven't, but I know it's uh, a future podcast episode, so I gotta Almost watch. Certainly. It. I haven't <laughs> seen it since it. the theater. <laughs> okay, but the the part that is important to me right now is that everybody who is in the in Cecil B. Demented's like film terrorist cell cult whatever you want to call it they have a tattoo of like the director that is sort of like their uh, spiritual advisor like the person that is sort of like their guiding light in their art personally and I always think about like what would I pick for me I think I would get Roger Corman tattooed on me because that like hey if you get it under budget you can do whatever the fuck you want is like such a cool and also uh greenlighting movies based on poster and name alone or like asking high schoolers what they would want to see and it's like well <laughs> i'll just give i'll just give somebody who seems cool two weeks to write a script and then if it has enough yeah like tits and car chases then yeah we'll make it that sounds great let's do that that i think um something about the the pace of like the Corman machine, the AIP machine, I think causes weird flashes of brilliance like this movie. Absolutely. And others like it where it's like, huh, okay, well, I didn't know that was in me. <laughs> yeah. Cool, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and it's funny, it's like, because also, also, like, he made a movie right after this, Monty Hellman did, which is another one of, well, it's, it's hard to recommend it as a movie, um, it's called Cockfighter. I almost, I almost walked out. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where, because uh, it's based on a book, and the, it's a Charles Wilford book, and he's the guy who wrote the Hulk Mosley like mysteries and all that sort of stuff. The book, like so much of what it's doing, is making sense because there's uh, zero animal cruelty in a book. <laughs> uh, making a movie about cockfighting is radically different, and it it is it is like this movie that becomes almost impossible to watch in that regard. Like, even for people mm-hmm. at the time. But it's like, I don't know, if you like outsider art and can stomach it, like, 
that's going to be a thing that people are going to want to watch in that regard. But like it, it is, it is a really interesting thing that like after the, you know, it's not like this movie did well, but like it was well received by people, like even on that like little inner circle and people like, Oh, this is really interesting. Um, and so he went out and he made this other movie. I think, I think he almost shot it like right back to back. I can't remember the story about it, but it's so strange that he just immediately went from A to B right, <laughs> right after that. Cockfighter is, uh, the the filmmaking, the energy of the filmmaking is a lightning bolt, but the animal cruelty stuff is like oh, it's so, so off putting. But I read, and maybe this is not accurate, but I understand that Monty Hellman delivered a version of the movie without actual like animal contact and violence. It was suggestive. It was like. <laughs> wides and style but they weren't actually like digging into each other and the studio had them shoot like inserts in additional photography because they were like oh it's a movie about cockfighting you want to see them fight Dead. um yeah. <laughs> that could be myth that could be revision but it is very interesting because the movie around it is it's it's not it's not about that violence it's about this yeah it's about this dude rebuilding life. himself you know yeah that really makes me wonder what Cry Macho is going to be like, because that is also a story. Like, I think Macho is the name of a prize cockfighting bird. Oh, really? But but I feel like there are so many ways now, even if you had a movie that featured violent cockfighting where it's not actual animals. And it still is a thing where I'd be like, oh, I don't want to watch this. But it's different when you know that, like, these animals okay. have, like, metal talons strapped to them and they're fucking poking each other yeah i'm uh, yeah, sorry I... <laughs> yeah cry macho in theaters soon yeah. sorry back to you hulk <laughs> no 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 it's like, it like part of part of that was just about like again the nature of what got made in this corman era and it was like it was all this sort of gonzo stuff but like i don't know it, it's it's interesting that like he still put this really really again I, you know i say symbolically dense movie in terms of what he's doing like even like you were talking about it, like when he was he was making that pitch to to uh, Lori Bird's character, uh, and talking about like oh we'll go to Florida and let the scars heal, which is this like really dark like line about like what these people have been through and what they're trying to escape and tone down and like forget, but like what keeps them nomadic is they keep searching and. Again, like, even though Monty Hellman, you know, is going and doing it, he's sort of like a famous weirdo, like, like, and I say that in the most loving way, but like, he still went to Stanford. Like, like, this is, this is a guy who was very scholarly for a long time. So you, you like, you know, he knows about this stuff, like, when he's writing a big <laughs> symbolic movie, but, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Warren Oates' character in this movie is fascinating to me because <laughs> he, he does it, he does it so well too because so often he has this look of when whatever eyes aren't on him he has this look of fear and doubt on his face that makes me pity him so much but then he's just being a total asshole at any moment people are looking at him so i have this weird like i really ping pong between schadenfreude and pity for him for pretty much the entire movie and also a slight wonder that they sell alka-seltzer at a diner <laughs> so there's like those are like the three emotions i have going when i'm when i'm thinking about warren oates's character bethy when you you said something earlier about warren oates gto that i thought was 
so funny and on the nose, which is that he just, he likes to tell stories. He likes to sort of map narrative onto things. And it, it made me think about his penchant for self-mythologizing is not unlike Kit in Badlands, but he, you know, he has he has limitations. He doesn't have sort of like the violent proclivities of Kit. But it, it, GTO to me is almost someone who like didn't really figure it out like Kit did. And now he's just sort of sad in old age, never having cemented this sort of mythology of self. Do you know who else he reminds me of? Speaking of self-mythologizers and the watching movies at the bar canon, the director of Reservoir, of not Reservoir Dogs, of... Uh... Troy Duffy. Help my stupid brain. Thank you. Yes, he reminds me of Troy Duffy. Just like I'm he's just going to talk about himself at people until they go away. I think though I would hug Warren Oates as GTO long before I would ever consider, you know, bringing Troy Duffy in for a warm embrace. God, there were so many people who liked Boondock Saints at my high school. Oh my god! I'm just thinking, <laughs> I'm just going back and it was, it was really more college, but just like Boston and all the Catholic crap. Oh man, it, it felt it felt it felt insufferable even then <laughs> at that kind of thing. But it's this interesting, undoubtedly like I don't know. It struck a chord with people. I was wondering what everybody's experience with long road trips or even cross country road trips is. What did that move? Did this movie touch anything for y'all? Hulk, you go first. Uh, so we did tons of car trips when I was very young. This is like, you know, when my family was still together. Uh, but even that, I did. I did a bunch with my mom after that. Is they they loved driving. They just always liked being in the car. And I remember when we were very young, we would go like visit my grandma in Hollywood, Florida, and <laughs> and. Uh, we we would do we would do that trip straight. They wouldn't stop. They would just switch and, sl- mm-hmm. and sleep in the thing, and it was their way. I mean, they're, they're both teachers' salaries. We were <laughs> like they were skipping as much as possible. But um, I, I remember just doing that long car trip, and just me and my brother being in the back seat, and I'm like really little, and it's like some of my early early memories. And my brother, he's you know five six years older, and um, just like him being annoyed literally the entire trip by me <laughs> like that's that's succinctly what i remember uh that part of it very much and my dad just being way too caffeinated uh, <laughs> like, uh i i loved i loved being in the car for long periods of time as a kid it was always really exciting to me um i liked the rhythm i liked the opportunity to play my game boy you know whatever um but the the longest road trip in recent memory was when I moved to Los Angeles. My friend Caleb rode with me. And so I drove from Iowa to LA in two days. It's pretty quick. Um, and we really went for it. And and we had the best time. I, I found it to be really peaceful. Um, there's something really nice about just sort of I don't know, watching the sort of gradual shifting landscape, it's, 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 it's kind of hypnotic. But I think about these two guys in the car all the time, just sort of living for racing and being in this close proximity. And after two days, I was like annoyed by my friend who's like the most lovely dude in the world. He was so gracious to ride with me. Like he did nothing wrong. And after two days, I was like, I can't. I, I can't do this anymore. I need a break. I need space. So the driver and the mechanic, those are true bosom buddies. I've done the opposite of this trip. I've gone from Washington, D.C. to California ah. with 
producer Colin. We were driving the car back. Were y'all racing? Were y'all racing? No, I have uh, what real car heads uh, call IBS. So, <laughs> uh, add two to three hours to whatever you think the time should be for a trip. So uh, it's a much more leisurely pace when one's body is broken. But it's like, it is really fun. And it's that same trip, like we I've been in that square in Santa Fe where um, the girl is spanging. That was like near the end mm. of our trip was uh, being in that square at like, everybody was gone by then. It was like yeah. pitch black. <laughs> but going going to bars also, that that's the same time where James Taylor is going to the different bars. I've been to, I might have been to the first bar in that movie yeah. or not. But um, yeah, I we don't tend to get annoyed at each other, Colin and I, which makes me feel like the mechanic and the driver are in fact married (laughs) (laughs) i believe like this you know this movie has the hitchhiker who like comes on to gto that he handles pretty well of just being like i don't have time (laughs) i'm busy it just it does feel the movie does feel pretty queer as i can't tell whether it's queer or car sexual like but the idea of even though there are like multiple like kisses and like implications of sex in the movie, it does feel like the main relationships are between men. Yeah, I mean, she even has the, that line where she's she's like she's like my rear end isn't getting enough attention, and like the two of them, yeah. the two of them are just like <laughs> like clearly have their, it's it's that thing where it's like these two guys who spend all their time together and they're so hyper rigid that it's it's absolutely so queer like like, like it's just everything about so straight yeah, it's yeah, gay yeah. again uh, yeah. it's like that or uh, wait no it's not a or or so and, you know you get what i'm saying um yeah. It is kind of. It's a, it's a snake sucking itself off. Yeah. No, it's an Ouroboros. Yeah. Like uh, the mechanic um, and the driver are eating each other's ass. Yeah. Sorry, this podcast is rated <laughs> R. <laughs> for, uh, I, I don't. I, for yeah, racing. for racing. I, I didn't have a yeah, yeah, yeah. I was aiming for a race car. Uh, but yeah, no, it's <laughs> like, I absolutely agree with that. Like, when it comes to, like, also just like long car rides. I, I remember I did one from Boston to LA. It's when I moved to LA. So this is like, 2004 i want to say the end of 2004 is when we started Uh, and i remember like we took our time with it and just like did it in like 10 or 11 days and we're stopping in you know new orleans and atlanta and every place that we can we we tried to go as southern route as possible just because it was still winter and um it was it was delightful i went with my old friend from college matt and like we had a great time he's still mad at me that i didn't stop to get uh peaches in georgia but like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but that if the, if that's the the only scrape coming out of it you're fine is there any way you can make that up to him uh i i feel Come like on, Hulk, can you make to, it up to him can you send him some peaches i have to really go back to georgia and do it myself i feel like to to are you gonna have to move to the country and eat you a lot of peaches <laughs> i i know you know there's worse plans especially right now you don't have to make a decision right now <laughs> you can figure this out later but it's something to yeah. consider but like the way that uh, speaking again to James Taylor at his most robotic when he's like turn the radio off it I need total like I can't have the radio on because it distracts me from driving. <laughs> like 
the the slightest sort of human moment of like listening to music is like too much for him it's like no i need to hear my engine please for some reason you saying that reminded me kind of of anton chigurh <laughs> from uh oh, yeah, right. it's just like that pure utter like utter need for focus and uh, on his on his dark goals <laughs> that will get him through oh god that's funny yeah what if the driver had the cattle air gun i think that might make me less sympathetic <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you can't take people's money that way or i guess you can but people will see <laughs> yeah he wants to win it fair and square he doesn't want to blow anyone's head off <laughs> now, it's so funny thinking about like everything about that car too and like the car the car basically being hollow of just like everything that's mm-hmm. like, like they don't even have a heater they don't have anything and i love that moment when uh, uh gto steps in the car and it's when he realizes like oh whoa these guys are real serious i'm never gonna be the, like like he has that kind of moment when he realizes like oh they don't even have a heater it's uncomfortable all they care about is speed um it's really interesting i love that moment uh another moment that's really iconic that i think we have to talk about before this podcast is over is when uh the driver is first trying to relate to the girl when they stop and they're sitting on fence posts together and he decides cicadas are the conversation topic of the hour and says, I quote, cicadas, you talk about survival, man. Those are some freaky <laughs> bugs. <laughs> They'll come out every seven years to fuck or something like that. I can't remember. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To shed a little skin and fuck. That's another moment. He like kind of flubs the line. Oh, they leave it in. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah, there's like, and there's another, when he orders the drink at the first bar in Santa Fe, he like flubs the line. I'll have a, glass of i mean i'll have a shot of rye and a glass of beer and it's interesting that what you told me what you just said thomas about um that he was only given pages like the day of so it it might just be a flub but it kind of almost feels like he's he has trouble expressing his thoughts and that's why he doesn't talk that often like it, it yeah it adds to the character that half of the time when he speaks it's misspeaking It's like, oh, I'm not I'm not actually a strong silent type. I just my mouth don't go so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think I think it does seem like he's whiffing the line, but also that is a kind of person, right? It's a mm-hmm. person who is not comfortable speaking such that they say sentences in their head before they come out. And you think about it too much, you get it wrong, but in your head you've got the idea of what the sentence is supposed to be, and so you're just kind of stopping and starting. Um, I think that's consistent with who the driver is, but I also think it's possible James Taylor was just annoyed that he didn't have a lot of time with his son. <laughs> I was going to say, there's like a lot of long takes <laughs> where, where they're just doing the full dialogue, but like yeah. also a lot of it is from behind them, so there's a lot of ADR in the movie too, so it's like... Uh, wait, I, I read something funny that was almost like a punchline in the same bit where I was reading about James Taylor being frustrated that he didn't get the full script. Eventually, he said that enough that Monty Hellman was like, fine, have it. And then it's reported that James Taylor never read it. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know, you want to be in charge, you want to be in control, but like, man. not enough to read a whole script, man. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> Yeah, it, and, and it's like, oh, God, it, it, you can see them also like finding moments of the movie, too. But also it's just like they had to go. They're shooting most of this in wide. They're getting those shots done. They're getting those scenes out and moving along. I want to talk about the truce egg. 
I was literally just thinking about the egg. Take it away. <laughs> I mean, it's just so funny, the idea that, like, how, how how can we show that that we're speaking to this man in good faith? Here, have a hard-boiled egg. First of all, gross. <laughs> just a room-temperature hard-boiled egg. Yeah, where did that uh, shit come from? Hurl me into the sun, I would rather, than eat that hard-boiled egg. Second of all, he just, like dives right into that thing <laughs> like making eye contact with dennis wilson while he eats it too Ay. it speaks volumes though about gto's character and i i was gonna bring that up as the second moment in the movie after the driver line about a uh, mega three yards and yeah. 11 automobile race um when he takes the egg, it's like you realize his whole thing is an act, right? That he doesn't actually have the confidence that he can beat them. He doesn't actually hate them. He feels kind of insecure, and he's sort of looking for attention where he can get it. But when they suddenly are, like, warm and open themselves to him, he's like, oh, hell yeah, I'll have an egg. Like, he doesn't even hesitate. I, I really love yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's like the competition between them just dissolves at the halfway point of the movie. It like it like yeah. it like literally just goes along, and there's even that point where it's like, what does this guy want? He has that scene where he's like, oh, these are my two boys, we're a family, you know, and it's that kind of thing, and you can see like him really, really wanting that, uh, mm-hmm. and it's 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 such an interesting scene. Um, he even sort of keeps like he changes. He has a different lie about how he got the car every time. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I was a jet propulsion guy, I was a whatever. Uh, but he sort of keeps the I'm a manager of race car boys for his like last like the soldiers that he picks up. Yeah. He sort of model is like I won this car racing for pinks. I manage car boys. That's my this is my life now. <laughs> That's my favorite moment in the whole movie. I love the nuance of the driver's performance and who that character is. But when GTO at the end of the movie decides that the best story to tell is from the POV of of mechanic and driver, like winning his car, like that's so interesting and endearing. He like in his head, he's like, okay, those guys are way cooler than I am, but like. I can also co-opt this story. I can make it mine. I, I really like that. Right. And, and it's this thing, right? Because it's like, what, what he's doing, what he's doing is incredibly toxic. Like, that, that's, that's what you're saying. <laughs> and, and take it, take it from someone who fucking used to do it a lot. Jesus. But it's like that you, you buy into this toxic thing of how, how you present yourself, right? And mm-hmm. you buy into this thing. He says it at the very beginning. Performance and image. These, this is what I have to be. This is what I have to do. And it's like, he he's trying to search for that way out of it, but he but he can't. He gets he he just gets stuck in it. He doesn't find the way out of it. He wants to go find that place and live on the the place with Florida, uh, with the girl and do all that stuff. But he he can't get out of that that trap and that cycle he's in. And it's like the fact that that's part of the ending is like again to bring it to this broad symbolism or whatever is like so much of what he's doing is about like the myth of America. And it's just like this idea of like the self-made man and all these other things that you're taught uh, in terms of being it. And it's just, it's, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And um, like, that's such a, a really important thing about uh, where it goes with that character and what it's trying to say with that character is like you, you <laughs> everything we're trying to talk about Americana and this, this beautiful idea is like, nah, this is, this is all coming undone. All of it. And, you know, like, again, Monty Monty Hellman had the 40-year view on this. 
I do have a question about the ending. So when you when you race for pinks, they send the pink slips. What is a pink slip? Is it their car's registration? Pink pink slip is like the card ownership right. or the car ownership. It's like the title, basically, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. And, and I don't know if it refers to the registration or like the deed ownership or like whatever it is. But I just okay. I just know it corresponds to whichever one means ownership. Again, I know jack shit about cars. I just like See, this. This is, the, this is the part I'm confused by because I thought that the pink slip was like the car's registration, so that when they mail. The car's registration to DC, they're driving without registration for that whole time. And if they never finish the race, they'll never get either of their car's registrations back. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's literally the the ownership document. Okay. But yeah, I, I think I think the ending in general is really fascinating, and I think the realization that the driver has before he peels off and the movie dissolves is very sad. It's kind of like even imagining a life outside of the one I'm chosen for myself, like this is this is what I do. This is all I can do. No, it's it's like I say, it's that it's that again that shambling thing of everyone going nowhere, <laughs> and, yeah. and just like somehow like making this, it still feel like a journey in that way in terms of like the way the characters kind of come undone in certain ways along the way and sort of. Uh, uh, do have these moments of of worth oh, i can't remember what it is uh oh there's this really great article that was talking about like life and like it was specifically for people who live nomadic lifestyles right where they haven't you know like oh i haven't had this giant decade-long relationship or whatever it is and they were talking about like it was something about like being oh, crap oh this is really gonna bother me uh but it's something about like being passengers and these little bits of of real intimacy that you get along the way of doing that and how that those little things being the thing you hold on to as you again live this nomadic lifestyle and just like i was thinking about that a lot as i was uh you know obviously watching this movie and watching like <laughs> these moments uh, where where they all like there's so often where they're switching what cars they're in in this race yeah. i don't think you'll ever see that mm-hmm. in anything else you know um but it's it's that weird kind of intimacy between between them all yeah i like that a lot yeah. all right bethy what are we missing this is where we get into the podcast math what what do we have to talk about um another line that i was really a big fan of is when the girl is in the back seat and she asks where they're going. And I think it's the mechanic says East and she just goes, Oh cool. I've never been East. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which again, it's, is it, yeah, it's a beautiful concordance between those characters. I'm like, ah, oh, sick. Yeah. It's, it's enough for all of them, at least at that point in the movie, which I think is very nice. I, I have a question, which is, have you ever hitchhiked before? I have not. Uh, no, I have not. I had a friend who used to hitchhike a lot. Uh, I don't think he does anymore. Bethy, if you told me that you had had hitchhiking adventures, I would believe you. I just expect you to have had every incredible life experience there is to have. So even though you said no, in my head, I'm filing this away as yes. (laughs) It's it's funny. It's like, I I feel like that's a big thing. That was like one of those things that was hugely popular in the 70s and probably like made sense in a lot of ways. But then like, I remember I was a real young kid. And my dad had taken in the seventies, Hulk. <laughs> uh, no, 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 80s though. Yeah, uh, uh, was uh, my dad had taken us 
hiking and there's this part where we had to get from a mountain to another mountain but we're so tired and there's a point where we it would be easier to just like cross this big highway and so i'm like very young i can't remember i'm like six seven i don't know what it is my dad's like oh we're gonna hitchhike i'm like what (laughs) (laughs) like isn't that supposed to be dangerous like (laughs) i think my dad's like "Ah, i'll be fine we'll be good i I guess you know having two kids and a bunch of clear backpacks uh it might seem a little bit easier but yeah we ended up getting a ride however many miles to this next entrance where we kept hiking and i i that was my one experience i i always think people are going to have some crazy story no one ever seems to (laughs) at least least not our age no my family picked up one hitchhiker once because it was raining really bad and it was just within the city that we lived in they were just going like across town essentially but that was the only and then yeah my friend dave used to hitchhike a lot he (laughs) He had a kid when he was in high school, I think, and then moved to a different town from her or the baby mama. So he would hitchhike back to that town to see them a lot. But also the the peak of hitchhiking was also the peak, I think, of serial killers in America. So I yeah. need the math. Yeah. My, my introduction to hitchhiking <laughs> as a kid was... Uh, tiny tune adventures yeah, dude. how i spent my vacation i don't know if anyone remembers this great movie but uh they <laughs> I, I think that was slightly they're entirely yeah. oblivious to uh what is very obviously like a jason Voorhees type serial killer a dude mm-hmm. like gets in with a hockey mask definitely has weapons and they're like hey hop on board you know um and obviously mm-hmm. hell awaits them and, like, yeah. uh, the radio turns on in the car. So, uh, Hampton, Plucky Duck is going with Hampton Pig's family to Super Happy Fun World yes. on this vacation. Yes. Oh, my God. This is taking me back. And, and so they, they pick up this hitchhiker. And at the sa- at, when they pick him up, Plucky is the only one who's, like, twigging to the danger. And the radio comes on and it describes the, the guy. It's like, just be on, be on the lookout. There's a killer who's escaped from a mental institution because that's how we perceive killers in this country, but whatever. And he has, he's wearing a hockey mask and he has on, uh, like blue sneakers. And then Plucky's like, whew. And they're like, just kidding. I'm sorry. We're getting in a report that he has on orange sneakers. And the guy is wearing orange sneakers and Plucky (laughs) loses his gosh dang marbles. Except for those sneakers looked red to me as a kid. (laughs) <laughs> and so I was always like miffed, I guess, that the color was like that's more of a red than an orange, but this is still good comedy. I'll let it slide for now. Yeah, Tiny Toon Adventures <laughs> was kind of my two lane blacktop at age uh four. Mm-hmm. So it sounds harrowing. Yeah. It's murderers everywhere. <laughs> uh the end of that movie, to spoil it, is that they do eventually get to Super Happy Fun World. And they ride the monorail through the park and then go home. They don't ride any of the rides. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is really funny. Uh, I just saw this movie is on Hulu, so I might revisit it for the first time in, you know, over 20 years. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Yeah, see if it stands up. This has been so fun. Hulk, thanks for for tolerating... uh, I am very sleepy. Maybe I've said some dumb stuff. <laughs> Who knows? But we're so happy to have you. Are you 
on social media can people find you online yeah yeah i'm, I'm on twitter you can you can find me there you know the the usual hellscape that is no twitter. what's what's uh, the handle okay. hit us with it uh it's just film crit hulk it's easy as that and you have a patreon too right oh yeah yeah i got, I got all that stuff i keep writing trying to stay busy do all that but uh yeah no i uh thank you for having me this is delightful i got to talk about a really fantastic movie that i've loved for two decades now <laughs> we, the, the tenor has been a little goofy, but I should say that Hulk is is one of the more thoughtful writers uh, that I know, and I always love reading his stuff. So I, I'm I'm sure you're already well versed, but if you haven't, dig in. There is a well of you know incredible stuff to read. Bethy, are you on yeah. social media? I am. I'm at Bethy B S Q U on Twitter and Bethy Squires on Instagram. Thomas, you have a Twitter. I do, yes. Uh, I can be found at at handsome underscore pal, words that you know, uh, punctuation with which you're familiar. Um, and the show has social media as well. Bethy? Yeah, it's at movie bar pod on Twitter and at movie bar underscore pod on Instagram. And if you go to Instagram now, you will see a video of Goofy and Max at Disney California Adventure, because that's where I went yesterday. Bethy <laughs> was sending me uh, some great stuff from the park. I gotta go. We'll have a, we'll have a get-together with both of our listeners, and maybe we all go to Disneyland sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. <laughs> all right. Our, our, our weekly sign-off, as always, is Bethy. Have you seen, you know, the girl, what's her name? Higgins? That's it. That's a wrap. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. Quentin Mulligan.